What is exciting is our next series, um, and we're calling it Friend. And we're going to be looking at the book of James. And today we're just going to be in James uh, chapter 1, verse 1 1, and give an intro uh, to the book of James. But uh, God has been just working out some stuff in me personally over the last year, year and a half in James. Uh, But this summer, as I felt led that this was going to be our next series, I just did a deep dive into it, and I'm really excited to go through this book. Uh, So we're going to read James chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to start. Today's uh, sermon title is Friend of God, an introduction to James. So you can read chapter 1, verse 1 on the screen with me. It says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Greetings. So before we get into James, we are just going to unpack what this series is going to look like, what we are going to be talking about. Um, And it's really exciting because James is one of the most controversial books in the Bible, if not the most controversial book in the Bible. And what's interesting is it was not always like that. Uh, And we can thank our good friend Martin Luther for that. What's interesting about James is is Martin Luther did not like James so much that he wanted to exclude it from the canon that people would read. And Martin Luther, he was a funny guy. If you ever read a biography on Martin Luther, uh, he just had some funny quirks about him. And so Luther decided to rate every book in the Bible in order of how much he liked it and how much he didn't like it. But really what he said was these are priority and these are not priority. And James came in whopping last place for his rating of the books of the Bible. Um, And so much of this controversy in the book of James actually comes out uh, from a misunderstanding that James and Paul have a conflict with one another. And the reason why I say it's a misunderstanding is because it is a misunderstanding. We're going to get into what that misunderstanding is later on in the book of James. We're going to talk about it shortly today. I wanted to put it out there just because I love this. You know, I think it's important that we elevate our understanding of Scripture. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people, they never learn about Scripture and they never learn about these these the history of Scripture. There are ways that Scripture has been interpreted over the last 2000 years that makes it fascinating and helps us understand it more. Uh, And so what happened was when Martin Luther was going through the Reformation right before that. Uh, The Catholic Church, you know, we didn't have the Reformation yet, so there was no Protestant church. The Catholic Church, they read the Bible through what was called the Vulgate. And the Vulgate was a Latin translation of the Hebrew and the Greek text, but it was a very poor translation of the Hebrew and the Greek text. So we can forgive Martin Luther for his misunderstanding of James because at that point they were just rediscovering the Greek and the Hebrew, if, if you can imagine, the top scholars of that day never even read the Bible in its original language. It's something that we take for granted nowadays. Nowadays, you can download Logos or an encyclopedia or just go online to you know, Bible.net or something like that. And you get the Greek right in front of you translated into English, all the different words that it can be, blah, 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 for the entire Bible in the original language. You get all of that. Well, they didn't have that back then. 
And they were just rediscovering the original Greek and the original Hebrew. And so a lot of this misunderstanding, uh, it comes down to this one thing is Luther is known for his, you can say, rediscovery of salvation by grace through faith. That was uh, Luther. If, if you read anything about Luther, you know about him. He's a very important part of church history. Uh, many of us would not uh, be here worshiping God the way that we do if it was not for Luther. And what he discovered was that you are saved not by works, not by the works of the law, not by what you do. It's not by how much money you give to the church. They had this thing called indulgences, which drove Luther crazy. It wasn't saved by that, but you were saved by the grace of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. And so he discovered this through the letters of Paul. But if you read James, and we'll get to this, James says something that's really interesting. He says in chapter 2, he says, see, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so he read this, Martin Luther read this, and he said there is a conflict here. And so therefore, I hate James. Let's never read James. Let's not talk about James. Don't like James. In fact, I don't even think you should read James in the Bible. He got a little crazy. Uh, we're going to explore a lot of this over this series, but what we have to understand about this conflict between James and Paul uh, is two things as we're reading the book of James. You know, this supposed conflict that happens only happens in 12 verses in the book of James. There are 108 verses in this book. It's not a large book. It's just about five chapters. It's not very large, but there's 108 verses, and this controversy comes from 12. And so we have to understand is we cannot read the entire book of James in light of just 12 verses. There are a lot of things that James has to offer in the book of James. And so when we reduce it to the supposed conflict of just these 12 verses, what we're doing is we're stripping James of all of the gems and the amazing content that is in here for all of us. The second thing that we need to understand as we're going through this is that Paul and James actually agree in their theology. And they actually testify to their agreement in Scripture. It is written that they agree. We're going to get into that as we get into the series, especially when we get to those 12 verses. We'll talk about it a little bit today later on. But we have to understand this. Paul was talking about faith that led to baptism. So we have to understand context of words that is used. James was talking about the faith of the baptized. Okay, so Paul was talking about faith when he talked about faith that led to baptism. So it was a faith that led to your initial salvation, faith that led you to Jesus. James is talking about the faith of the believers. James is talking about the faith of people who are confessing Christians. And so there's a different context around this word that is used, and that has caused a lot of misunderstanding. And we're going to dive deeper and deeper into that as we get into this series. But the thing that we need to understand is historically in the church, the church has been around for 2,000 years. The Reformation only happened, what did they celebrate their 500 or 400 year anniversary? 500, there we go. My reformed head's in the back, know their stuff. 500 year anniversary, they're bison, uh, by millennium, whatever you call that thing. Um, and so historically before that, we had 1,500 years of church tradition 
And there wasn't a conflict between James and Paul in 1,500 years of church tradition. They understood James in very different ways. And we're going to learn some of that as we go through the series. I'm really excited because there is so much to go through in James. He covers a range of topics and a lot of great stuff. So, But I want to ask the question first, who is James? Who is James? James says one thing about himself here, but even who James is is a confusing point. Shocker. The reason is, is because there are two Jameses in Scripture who everybody knows about. There are two significant people named James. And the first person that we get to introduce to that is named James in the New Testament uh, and everybody thinks they're the same person for uh, some reason. I did for a while uh, before I realized like the, the James of the Gospels that we hear about a lot is not the James who wrote the book of James. The first main James that we encounter is James and John, the two disciples of Jesus. These are uh, part of the 12 disciples that Jesus had. They become part of the 12 apostles of the early church. James and John were brothers. Uh, James, John, and Peter are three people that go into Jesus' inner circle of three disciples that he takes with him into significant moments in his life. So we read a lot about James, and he gets uh, the first James, and he gets kind of ingrained in our head. But, however, that James dies in Acts. He is, uh, in the early church, one of the first believers that is martyred that we read about. Uh, In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, we read about that death of the apostle James that is part of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And you can read with me on the screen. I believe I put it up there. It's Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So very early on in the church, this is the very beginning of the church, the apostle James that we know is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus is martyred. Right? Jesus told them that this was going to happen. He told them that they were going to be persecuted. He told them that they were going to suffer in the same ways that he suffered, which many times, for the, especially for the apostles, it meant death at persecution. And so James was the first apostle who saw this fate uh, with the sword. So who is James writing the epistle? Well, this James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half because they shared the same biological mom, but not the same father. Um, If you want to get into that controversy... (laughs) Read the beginning of any of the Gospels and you'll figure it out. When we talk about Advent, I'll explain that one. That's coming in a few months. And so... He first, James does, this James actually first appears in the Gospels as well, but it's briefly mentioned once in Mark, once in Matthew. Matthew 13, 55, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? They're talking about Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Jesus had a lot of brothers, a lot of half-brothers, and James was one of those half-brothers. But we actually read about the brother of Jesus, James, Again in Acts, multiple times. And he is leading the church in Acts. The first time we see him is also in chapter 12. So that James dies. And then this new James reemerges, the brother of Jesus. In um, Acts chapter 12, Peter tells people, 
He says, go report back to James what happened here. So a lot of stuff is happening in the church. And Peter says, go tell James. So we get kind of this glimpse that James is a, a significant part of the church. He's one of the leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. Again, we see him in Acts chapter 15. We see James reemerge again. And this is an interesting thing because Paul and Barnabas have a meeting with James. So a lot of people think, right, Paul is in conflict with James, but we get to read about their first meeting here in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have been going around. They've been seeing a lot of Gentiles get saved. They've been on their missionary journeys, and then they come back to report to the church what is happening. And so Paul and Barnabas, they come to the elders in Jerusalem to report all that God is doing through them to reach the Gentiles and they go to the elders because there is a controversy about what is happening. Paul and Barnabas are not making the Gentiles follow the law of Moses to the T. So they're not making people get circumcised and they're not making people follow the clean laws and the feasts and things like that. And so Paul and Barnabas go and they present their case. They say, look at all the fruit that is happening. And one of the, they pr- the two people that preside over their case are Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And so at the end of Acts 15, James makes a pronouncement. And he says in his pronouncement that he perceives that the Gentiles do not need to be bothered to follow the law of circumcision and all these other laws that the Pharisees were trying to get them to follow. And he agrees that they should not be bothered and that Paul and Barnabas can continue to go on their way. And they don't have to, the Gentiles don't have to follow the customs of the Jewish law. So that is the first place that we begin to see an agreement. Now there's controversy again. If anybody thinks that the early church didn't have problems, you have not read the New Testament. Right? Everybody thinks the early church was perfect. They never argue with one another. They had intense arguments. In fact, the first council that we see of the church coming together to make a decision is a council around this, where the apostles come together and, and make a decision. Will the Gentiles be allowed to be entered into the kingdom? And we read about that earlier in Acts. We covered that uh, in our last series when we talked about eating with Gentiles. But we see that this conflict keeps on coming back because it's hard for people to see how can these people be part of us how can they be in our tribe how can they be the same religion and if you want to call it that as us, as they do not follow the same laws and the same customs as us if they are not part of the circumcision if that's been who we are for so long in Acts 21 the issue comes up again James hears another report from Paul and after he hears this report he glorifies God when Luke writes that he glorifies God, what he's saying is there is agreement that what Paul is doing is good and James, as he glorifies God, agrees with what Paul is doing. So we see from Acts 15 and Acts 21 that James is one of the main elders, if not the main elder, of the Jerusalem church. He is one of the main leaders of the church. He is the half-brother of Jesus and in his own words, In James chapter 1, verse 1, he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important to know who is writing this because it 
adds weight to what we are reading and the things that we are about to learn. That this is somebody who not only spent time with Jesus during his ministry, but literally lived with Jesus growing up. So he knew of Jesus. He knew of the teachings of Jesus. And the next thing that we have to understand is who is James writing to? Well, he says right in the beginning, James 1, he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. But what does that actually mean? It's a good question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> this is a shortened version. A shortened version of understanding this means this. He is writing to the spiritual Israel. Me and you, we are the spiritual Israel. He is writing to the believers, the people that confess Jesus, the ones that follow Jesus. That is who he is writing to, the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, which is who we are. We are the spirit that all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham. It says in the Old Testament, we are the spiritual sons and daughters of him. We are the spiritual Israel, the people of God. And so that is who James is writing to. He is writing to a church that is not held by geographical locations. So whereas Paul writes to Ephesus or to Rome or to, you know, the different churches, Colossae, James is writing to the church, the confessors of Jesus at large. And they are not held by geological location, but by spiritual closeness. And important for us, we need to know that James has a lot to say about people who confess Jesus but do not act godly. He has a lot to say, and we're going to be getting into that every week. James has a lot to say about people who confess Jesus but do not act godly. See, the whole sermon series is based on this concept because there's a concept that James brings that we'll keep on talking about, this concept of being a friend of the world or a friend of God. And James says that there are very particular ways that you can see, you know, in a world of nuance, in a world of a lot of gray area, it is very refreshing to read James because he brings a lot of black and white. You either act this way or you act this way. And if you act like this, you're acting like a friend of the world. And your confession is false. But if you act like this, you are acting like a friend of God. And you are justified before him. And the reason that we have to, one of the reasons why we have to understand who James is talking to is because when he talks about being a friend of God and a friend of the world, how he practices that out is how we treat one another. And so we're going to be talking a lot about how we treat one another. James says a lot, if you act like this towards somebody, then you are acting like somebody who is of the world. But if you act like this towards somebody, then you are acting like somebody who is a friend of God. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a lot of people think, well, that just changes my relationship with God. But that is untrue if we end it there. What happens when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we have a relationship with God, it not only changes our relationship with God, but it changes our relationship with one another. Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you shall love your neighbor. Right? So if our relationship with God just changes our relationship with God, then that is a misunderstanding of what a relationship with God should be. 
And this actually is good for people who are not of the church. If you are not a confessing Christian, then you can listen to this and think, and you may be here and think, man, I've seen a lot of hypocrisy in the church. I've seen a lot of people say that they are Christians, but act this way or that way. Well, during the series, James actually sees the same thing, and he is tired of the same hypocrisy that the world accuses us of many times. And he begins to call it out. And so you can learn what is a true Christian actually supposed to look like? What is a confession Christian actually supposed to act like? What are the things in the church that we should in community do with one another? James begins to tackle those questions. If the gospel does not change how we treat people, then we have falsely confessed Christ. Jesus puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's powerful right there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses me will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the one who obeys. What is, and we know what Jesus calls us to do. We know what God calls us to do. The one who obeys. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a powerful statement that Jesus says that James is reiterating. I had a funny meme. I asked them to, you got that meme on there? This is, I, I saw this meme last week and I had to put it up here. Who cares if you can speak in tongues if you're mean in English? Who cares if you can speak in tongues if you're mean in English? Let me tell you something. I've been around people who had all the spiritual gifts and then extra that were never in the Bible. They had it all. You know, they had all the greatest revelation. They had all the gifts of God, but... They were huge jerks. They were jerks to their coworkers. They were jerks to their family. They were jerks to their neighbors. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what James, the point he's trying to get across. Who cares what you say with your mouth if your actions tell a different story? We've all heard the saying, actions speak louder than words. That is a godly saying. Right? James is going to try to hammer this home over and over again. James is not creating a new doctrine. Actually, he's pulling from the Hebrew text. He's pulling from the words of Jesus and he is reiterating it in a contextual way for the Christians, the new church, to understand what does it mean to be a confessing Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus Not only with our words, but actuality in our life and in our practices. What does that look like? The three sources that James pulls from are Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is the Old Testament law of how to treat your neighbor. If you read Leviticus 19 and you read James side by side, you realize that James is just regurgitating a lot of what is in Leviticus 19 in a new and godly way. He 
speaks a lot on the Sermon on the Mount. We already quoted the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to quote the Sermon on the Mount some more. The, the Sermon on the Mount were Jesus' main teachings. This is the main teachings that he taught to his people. And when he taught these things, what Jesus was doing was he was pulling as well from the Hebraic text, from the Old Testament, and saying this is, this is what this actually means. He was interpreting the Old Testament law so that when we, we went through Deuteronomy, why? So we can understand the character of God and how God does not change. This is God is a redemptive God. God is a loving God. God is a just God. Right? These are all things about God that has not changed. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, this, this, and this. This is what that actually means. And James pulls from that. And then Psalm 12 as well, which explores the tongue and speech. James gives a lot of talk about how we use our tongue and how we use our speech. And really, it's a lot of what the crux of what James is saying. We talk a lot. You know, Christians love to talk. Love it. Praise God, brother. Amen. Doing great today. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Everything is going well. How are you? Blessed in Jesus' name. Thank you very much. Holy and righteous before the throne of God. Amen. Christians love to talk. I mean, if you are a Christian long enough, you know the lingo. You know how to get out of any conversation you don't want to be in. You know exactly based off of what pitch the hello is, how much they want to hear. You know, you just you know, you know the talk. And James says, you know, Christians know how to talk. But man, the kingdom of God is not about talk. Paul says it's about the power of God. James says it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. So there's a lot that James has to say about what we say and what that does. So James is writing to the body of believers with a contextual understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. How does this apply to the church? How does this apply to people who confess Christ? And what is his main point? What does he want to communicate? James is trying to truly convert confessing people. Confessing believers, people that say, I follow Jesus. James is trying to lead them into a true conversion. Confession of believers and conversion of believers who are more friends with the world than they are friends with God. You know, we're going to go through an entire passage where the aim of this passage, the crux of James, is in chapter 3, verse 13 to chapter 4, verse 10, which James is trying to lead a confessing believer out of friendship with the world into friendship with God. This is his point. He wants to lead people who say, Lord, Lord, confess his name into a true relationship with God that not only changes their speech, but changes their actions. That's the main theme of this series. How do we change not just our speech, but change our actions towards one another, towards God? Are we Christians who act according to the worldly systems? Now, when James says world in this passage, in context, he's talking about the sinful systems of the world. 
Are we Christians who subscribe to the sinful systems of the world and, and show more friendship towards that? You know, the, the culture says this. The world says this. I, I like this. You know, there's some specific examples. Or do we subscribe to godly righteous systems, the systems of heaven, the system of God's kingdom, the systems of God? Does our actions show that we prefer the world's systems and the world's desires and the world's goods? Or does our actions show that we prefer God's will, God's desires, and God's economy? James says this about Christians who confess but do not act out that confession. He says they pray, but for their own gain. That's in James chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 4, verse 3. He says they practice partiality in their assemblies. It's in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says they refuse to help the needy, but use religious language to cover their rejection. It's in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. He says they use the same tongue to bless God and curse their brother or sister made in God's image. It's James chapter 3, verse 9. James has very strong language for these believers. He calls them double-minded, unstable, and adulterous. Now, back then, those are fighting words. That's like, basically, I just cussed you out. That's basically what James just did to the congregation. If, if you act like this, if, if your prayer life is centered around your own gain and not following the will of God, you are double-minded. You are unstable. You are an adulterous person. If you practice discrimination in your life, in the congregation, you are double-minded. You are adulterous. You are flimsy in your thinking. If you refuse to help people that are in need, but you cover it up with a lot of fluffy religious language, you are unstable. James says you are like a person who looks in the mirror and then five seconds later walks away and forgets what their reflection looked like. One author put it this way when describing what a double-minded Christian is. He says... One who claims to be within the covenant community, the body of Christ, the church, but dallies with the values and standards of outsiders of the world is a spiritual adulteress. Spiritual adulteress. So somebody that claims Jesus, that claims the gospel, that claims God as Lord, but then looks on TV advertisements and loves the things of the world loves the things of the world more than they love God, that is a spiritual adulteress. That is a double-minded person. So statements that we are going to explore throughout this series, really good statements for us to understand. I believe in Jesus, but still sleep with my partner outside of marriage regularly. I believe in Jesus, but am a selfish and egotistical winner. I believe in Jesus, but am not generous to the poor. I believe in Jesus, but discriminate against my neighbor. Church, James has challenged my theology. And I pray that as we go through it, that it will challenge us. Even as I read these statements, I feel like there's a 
heaviness in the room. I'll let you know, that is something called conviction. (laughs) Conviction does not feel the best, but what it does is good. It leads us to God. See, if at the end of this, if we feel pushed away, then we are not feeling the conviction of God. We are feeling the condemnation of the enemy. And we have to understand that as we go through James, that what we want to experience is the conviction of God. God, show me what I am doing wrong so that I can be led to repentance before your cross. God, allow me to see the dirtiness of my own soul so that I can see my deeper need for you. But what the enemy will try to do during this series is he will try to say, you are not good enough for God. And he will try to condemn you. And he will try to say, you see, this is why you shouldn't be, try to be a Christian anymore because you do this. See, you are not somebody who should even go to church anymore. You know, you should just give up because you're a bad person. Guess what? You know what you can do when the devil lies to you and tries to bring condemnation on you? You We talked about this in our membership class today. What I love to do that is is funny is I love to agree with the devil. You're right. I'm awful. You're right. I am a sinner and I do not deserve any. You're right. I should not go to, you know, in fact, I should not be preaching. But guess what, devil? (laughs) Yo, John's about to get up here and start doing It is the grace of God that allows me to stand in front of people. It is the grace of God that keeps me back coming to the earth. It is my faith in Him, not my works, that has led me to salvation. And so, but we need to understand this. It's important that we are going to be convicted. We are going to feel weird. We are going to feel squirmish like, man, I don't like what he is saying right now. But allow that to lead you deeper into the presence of God. Scripture says the pure in heart shall see God. See, one thing that we also have to understand is this. That many times we have mistaken the grace of God. Is that God's grace says this. It says, come to me wherever you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. Repent. You will be forgiven. No person is too far. No mountain is too high. No valley is too low for me to meet you and rescue you. That's what the grace of God says. But many times we have taken that and we have made the mistake of adding to it to also say that the grace of God means that God does not care about my actions, that God does not care about how much I sin, that if I keep on sinning forever, habitually, that there will be no consequences for my sin. We have said that the grace of God means I can follow Jesus and continue to follow my desires. And that is what James says, nuh-uh-uh, we're putting an end to this in the church. That there needs to be conviction in our soul. That the minute that we confess Jesus, yes, it doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how dirty or dark our closet of secrets is. But when we come to God, that no longer reflects the lifestyle that I live after I confess Jesus. Does that mean I'll be perfect from day one? No, it says in John, 1 John, that that is not the case. That we all 
sin. And if we say that we don't sin, we call God a liar. But what it means is how I act towards my sin is different this time than it used to be. That in the past, I was okay with it. In fact, I liked it. Maybe I even wanted it more, but now it drives me crazy. I can't stand it. It's a war for my soul that instead when I sin, I go before God in holy repentance saying, God, I have sinned against you. And I cannot live like this anymore. The difference from before to after is it didn't bother me then, but it kills me now. I cannot continue in this lifestyle anymore. This is challenging and convicting truth. God accepts us where we are, but then changes us to be more like him. We cannot have the first part without the second. And if we think, if we don't have the second, then the first part is false. And that's the truth. God accepts us where we are, but then he changes us to be more like him. I pray that the series exposes where we have believed the lie that friendship with the world is okay in our life. I've been praying over the series and I've been praying that the Holy Spirit, not only in you, but also in me, exposes the lie where I've said, this is okay for me to live with as a Christ follower. And I pray it convicts us to repent and to go to God to his Holy Spirit, to change and to transform and to renew my mind and my heart.